0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today we are going to talk about something that I'm thinking a lot of people are interested in, possibly have a very specific interest in. Let's start with a quick story in some criminal profiling. And this is in the 1950s in New York City. There was this person who was planting bombs. This person was planting bombs in movie theaters and subway stations and in telephone booths. And they were doing it for 16 years. They were going on doing these things, eluding the police. And they were trying to figure out who this could be and how to stop them. And it was just really difficult. And so they actually enrolled the help of a psychologist. And the psychologist determined that the bomber was paranoid and that the peak age of paranoia is 35. And so because the bombing began at that peak age of paranoia, the psychologist determined that the bomber was in his early 50s, 35 plus 16 years, early 50s, right? Yeah. As it turns out, he was exactly correct. And they were able to apprehend their suspect, George Metesky, and he quickly confessed to his crimes. So does that all that make sense, how I set that up? Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: It's interesting, though. Right. Like, it's interesting to think that that's a a hell of a guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was. And we'll speak more about some of the techniques and some of the things with respect to criminal profiling as well.
1: Yeah, so today we are going to talk about profiling criminals based on their crimes, also known as, get ready for this. Psychological profiling or criminal profiling or investigative psychology or offender profiling or crime scene profiling or crime action profiling or criminal investigative analysis and behavior analysis. So long list of names for this thing.
0: Yes. So this doesn't necessarily fit under the same umbrella. If you were to go look for this, you might find a lot of different things depending on what your search terms were or who you're talking to if you're trying to interview people.
1: Yeah. And if you don't have good Boolean operators, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) good internet tech speak.
0: (laughs) So we're going to define profiling. We're going to review the history and development of the field of profiling and all the different names that it has had. Well, not the history of all the different names, just saying that I'm calling it profiling right now. So I don't have to say any one of those names and pick to it. Although I'll mostly call it either psychological or criminal profiling. We're going to unpack some of the controversy and we will discuss some of the research that has evaluated some of the profiling and profiling techniques.
1: Yeah, so before we begin, I think we can say pretty readily that there's a lot to criticize about things like law enforcement and the idea of justice, quote-unquote justice, in general with respect to things like ethics, pragmatism, as well as brutality, racism, classism, and the entire notion of government-sponsored force on citizens. There's a lot of stuff there to unpack. We're not going to get into that. We're going to try to avoid that as best we can. And instead, our primary goal is to focus and understand just the psychological considerations of profiling a suspect. So that's what we're going to focus on, a very small slice of that pie, but an important one at that. I mean, those are important. And I do want
0: to know that we understand that they're important. And I just don't want to be distracted and talking about police profiling by how this might have been misused or misapplied or carried out injustice that sort of thing. Those are certainly topics that should be covered at some point, but just to make sure that we're focused on our specific topic here, which is the profiling aspect of that law enforcement thing, regardless of how you feel about law enforcement, generally speaking. And I also want to offer up a quick public service announcement that we are going to be discussing a few details of cases, just a few, in which there is a mild amount of details with respect to violence done to people and there's some description of some of the gore that was involved in that. So this might not be suitable for all audiences if that's something that you're uncomfortable with listening to. There's not a lot of it, but it did come up and it felt like it was important in talking about the details of that case. So I didn't want to just omit it. So just as a warning that that is coming up.
1: Yep. And so I think with that it's probably good to get into the history of all this right? We could probably start in that realm of this particular topic. Let's do it. All right. So, for a substantial portion of history in law enforcement there have been some attempts to ID who done it, which is also my favorite detective term. Yeah, right? Besides calling somebody a gumshoe like, <laughs> ah, who done it, you know? So mostly by relying on confessions, witness testimony, considering access, motive, and more recently forensic evidence such as DNA, fingerprints, and surveillance. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into just understanding how people and how criminals get caught. Yeah, and
0: some of the techniques for solving crime, especially a long time ago, were very archaic and highly prone to mistakes, often more mistakes than not mistakes, because they were based on really generic assumptions about things and a lot of bigotry and lack of concern for the well-being of lower classes and that sort of thing.
1: Just even with that, too, like some of the techniques that we talk about in the false confessions episode right? kind of tells you how people would even coerce and stuff. So, But we're not here to talk about that. Well, it actually just reminded (laughs) me of of.
0: that skit in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they're accusing that woman of being a witch. And (laughs) he's saying, how do we know she's a witch? And they're doing the whole thing of... Uh, she turned me into a newt. <laughs> but well, it got better. It got, I got better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but specifically the part where he's like, so if witches burn, then that must mean that they're made of wood. And the other thing that we know is that wood floats. So if the witch floats... Then she's also made of wood, which means she's a witch. So let's compare her to the weight of a duck, which also floats. (laughs) So if she weighs about the same as a duck, then she must be a witch. And that's the way they, they carry out their forensic investigation. And that... Although I think that that's off a little hyperbolic, I would also think it probably wasn't terribly far off from some of the nonsense that people did in their criminal investigations a long time ago.
1: I think all you gotta do is just look at the Salem Witch Trials and see how absurd all that was, Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so, either way, regardless of what technique is being used, all approaches to criminal investigations have essentially had a goal. First, to find a suspect of any kind. And second, to try and narrow down the pool of possible perpetrators... The correct person. So they're trying to, to kind of cast a wide net and then find the right person in that.
0: And now, finding the definition of a profile by itself was fairly difficult. I kind of had to synthesize this down from how a lot of the different sources talked about this. But essentially, a profile is a description of potentially identifying characteristics of a person who has committed some crime. And the purpose of that profile is to eliminate non suspects as well as to highlight possible perpetrators by. Again, specifying what those characteristics might be. So we'll talk more about what those characteristics are as we move into this.
1: Yeah. So within a profile that might be constructed, it could include things like demographic characteristics such as age, race, gender, and even body type. It can include things like habits, such as whether the person has friends, the kinds of movies they like, body modification, or how they dress. It might include predictions regarding what they will do next, or how they will react to being caught. And, of course, there may be an estimation of the perpetrator's personality, motivations. Of course, these are all just suppositions based on whatever information they have at that moment. Now, my favorite part of this is looking at body modification. Like, looking at that piece, both of us have tattoos. Right. So, there was a period of time where we probably would have been profiled because of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so... I'm actually thinking of the movie Red Dragon where he's talking to Hannibal Lecter and he said, look for extensive tattooing. And essentially he's helping the detective construct a profile where he's coming up with these things because of what has happened at the scene, some of the details of the crime scenes and suggesting that that means that he probably has tattooing. And there's definitely a hardcore stereotype about people with some amounts of body modification. In fact, I met someone when I was in college who was afraid of me at first because she said that she thought that only criminals and people who were like violent had tattoos because of what she'd seen in the movies and stuff. Wow. And she was from another country so she had I think a little bit more restricted of access to those people but she was surprised that I was not mean or violent even though I had tattoos.
1: <laughs> As a matter of fact, you are the
0: opposite of that. Yes. <laughs> I try not to be mean. Yeah. And I'm definitely not violent. Yeah. All right. So going back into talking about the development of this, many sources point to the 1888 investigation of Jack the Ripper in London as the first instance of psychology applied to solving a crime. So about the next 20 or 30 seconds or so is where we discuss the details of a case that involves some of the more gruesome details about Jack the Ripper, if you want to skip that now. It's kind of fuzzy because, as we mentioned, going back in time, people have always tried to essentially narrow the field of suspects to figure out who the perpetrator probably is. So there's always been some amount of using information about the crime to narrow it down to somebody. And that probably did involve, at least in some cases, thinking about the behaviors that the person engaged in and then who most likely fit that sort of characteristic However, this is the one where it's the first maybe documented or at least proposed as the first instance. And so Jack the Ripper was the title given to the presumed individual behind a series of attacks on women that included a lot of mutilation of the person. And the killer would often or usually or maybe even always cut their throat and would mutilate their corpses by removing some of the organs from their body which often included things like their
1: uterus at this time when this was going on these were pretty horrific acts but because of the nature of the crime police believed that the suspect was a surgeon specifically because of the removal of the organs now psychologists george phillips and thomas bond which are also very English names. I think we've had a discussion about English names. Yeah. And that's a very those are very English names. They suspected that the suspect was actually not a surgeon specifically due to the sloppy nature of the cuts, because they weren't as precise as what you would see out of an actual surgeon's hand.
0: And of course anybody familiar with this case knows that no suspect was ever conclusively identified, although lots of people have speculated who it might be.
1: So another common example is in the 1950s case of the Mad Bomber that we alluded to in the beginning of this episode. Now, the suspect had planted more than 30 bombs and injured, although miraculously didn't actually kill 15 people. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, I don't know if you would say that they were an unsuccessful bomber or that those people were very lucky, but those people didn't die. So that's good. So only 15 people were injured. A little of both, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So he left little to no evidence, or at least that could be detected at the time you know, with the technology that was available and had authorities frustrated and desperate for what was about 15 years.
0: Right. And so they called in that psychologist we mentioned earlier. His name was Dr. James Brussel. And he examined aspects of the bombings, notes from the bomber, and concluded that this was a male, that he was a foreigner. He was in his 50s. He was unmarried. He was self-educated. I don't know how he arrived at this, but that he lived in Connecticut and that he specifically had a vendetta against the Con Edison Power Company.
1: For all of our Connecticut listeners, we know they're the troublemakers. So (laughs) that, that tracks. That tracks. Now, some of this was based on common sense. For example, the first attack was on the Con Edison Company headquarters, but much of it turned out to be accurate and particularly the age, which is one of the more interesting pieces of this case. Right. And he did confess to the
0: crimes when they caught him. It's difficult always because... I'm thinking if English was not his first language, and I'm not sure if that was the case here, or just thinking about the false confessions, like, we don't know what that interrogation actually looked like when they got those confessions, but presumably the bombings did stop after they caught him, so probably this was the correct suspect. But it does always just make me wonder thinking about, a confession doesn't mean a guaranteed guilt, in my experience, and what we've learned and talked about on here. So I just always wonder about that now. I think it's something to not be taken as a definitive sign of one's responsibility to that. So,
1: Given that this was the 1950s when there was a lot of stuff going on about, like, the you know, you had the upcoming Cold War and you had, like, some xenophobia going on, like, especially if they're identifying somebody as a foreigner, then there's probably a lot of tactics there that are a problem that we have to consider that context in relation to this particular crime.
0: That was actually one of the things that stood out to me as potentially alluding to the fact that it might be a false or co-host confession is the fact that they had to specify this was a foreigner, whatever that might mean. Yeah. So another important name that came up was Leah Weinerman, and she was the author of a 2004 APA article on profiling. And she points to the FBI's formation of the Behavioral Science Unit in 1974 as the beginning of the more modern psychological profiling techniques.
1: Yeah. And so you'll see here... Within this formation, John Douglas and Robert Ressler conducted a series of interviews of 36 serial killers to try to develop categories for identified characteristics that are important to the perpetrator of a crime. Now, what's interesting is if you look at this particular population in the interviews, they're interviewing serial killers and not necessarily an entire group of people that committed different crimes or grabbing profiles from different types of crimes because they would require a different set of behaviors right
0: right and presumably at this point they were just trying to gather some amount of data so like i understand at least that they had a method to what they were going about trying to do here and looking at their initial assessment what they concluded was that there were there were several categories they came up with in terms of patterns but notably they sort of delineated crime into two groups of being either organized or disorganized. And that's something we're going to have to come back to because that's raised a lot of controversy over time.
1: Yeah. So it's worth noting that, you know, a literature review revealed that the organized disorganized filter may not be useful for some cases because serial offenders, a serial killer specifically, almost always show some level of organization. And I mean, you can look at uh, there are a ton of cases where you've got serial killers that are prolific serial killers that were. Their their crimes were horrific and incredibly sloppy in general but they were organized in their methods and stuff. So that's so that's where the filter gets a little bit muddy.
0: Right. And and we'll talk a little bit more about what they mean by organized and disorganized in a moment as we talk about some of the profiling sort of techniques. Now, many of the approaches to criminal profiling began with inferences based on experience from people who were in law enforcement there were those who informed their suppositions based on notions of christian morality their view of races or just whoever was the most convenient suspect to point a finger to at the time and so you would legitimately see people as part of their profiling saying well if they're engaging in these heinous acts then they must not be a christian or they must be jewish or they must be a satanist which was the satanic panic of the 1980s and it wasn't based on the f- anything other than this idea of sort of Christian morality. And so what that did mean a lot of the time is that people who were definitely Christian or at least identified that way would never have been considered a suspect because they were, they were the good guys, according to the person's sort of own bias coming in. And it's worth maybe noting here that many, many criminals, most actually... <laughs> According to some research that I found, identify as Christian.
1: There's two cases that totally dispel that right there that I can think of It's like the BT, the BTK killer and John Kuklinski, Iceman, like family men apparently were really good to their kids. Terrible people. Right. So, you know, just keeping that in mind as we go for like, there are some like, at its inception, there are some flaws in it already. but
0: And we're not trying to throw Christianity under the bus. Just saying that that was a bias that people brought to their investigations that made it so that their profiles were tainted by their personal biases.
1: Right. Because of that bias, they may have ruled out somebody that was the actual perpetrator. Right. Exactly. So the APA and Psychology Today writer, Dr. Scott A. Bond, described criminal profiling as a combination of psychology and forensic science And that it is as much a science as it is an art, which as somebody working in a human field, that is an interesting way to look at it. But also I think is a fairly important to conceptualize this. I mean, you have to like know about timing. You have to know when to intervene. You have to have these skills. I mean, it's all skills and behavior, but you have to know when to say something to somebody. You have to like it. There are so many things that go into it. I mean calling it an art is a little bit of a stretch, but I get the sentiment there.
0: Right. I think the the message that he was trying to make is essentially that there's so much subtlety in how you make those intuitions and that those have to come from a careful I mean, there is a a level of intuition, but a largely coming from a a carefully constructed history of practice and expertise and feedback and being willing to hone your skill by acknowledging when you're wrong and correcting that moving forward. And that was a sentiment also that came up repeatedly from other people beside just Dr. Bond, that Bond, Scott (laughs) Bond, sorry, it just came out of my mouth and I heard it. I I had to get it out. Yeah, it just just (laughs) sounded right. So anyway. Just that this was a science and an art was a frequently expressed sentiment. So many have tried to strengthen the utility of criminal profiling by adding statistical analyses and relying more on observation and trying to avoid these sort of speculations and inferences that have occurred in the past that were often tainted by those biases. So let's actually then transition into describing a little more really how this works. So. This is the this, this section of this discussion where we're going to tell you, we're going to set the, the context for how they do profiling, as well as an actual how-to that we found in terms of here are some things, here are some profiles that would be based off of those types of patterns and behavior.
1: Yeah, so a name that frequently came up was George McCrary, a retired FBI agent, who spoke about the assumption of profiling that, quote, behavior reflects personality. Now... I don't really get this statement. No. You know, first of all, personality is basically a pattern of behaviors or actions common to an individual. So we can rephrase that sentence to mean that the assumption is that, quote, behavior reflects behavior, uh, which is circular nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. That doesn't, that's, it's a snake eating its own tail right there. So the second point that we want to make here is behavior is not actually being observed. We're only actually looking at the outcomes of behaviors. We're seeing the result of the behavior. So the conclusion is that the crime scene features actually reflect the behavior that caused them, not some kind of direct measure or direct observation of that specific behavior. Yes. That's an important distinction when you talk about behavior. Now, we didn't need a psychologist to tell us that, you know. Of course a crime scene was caused by behavior, what else could it be? Right. It couldn't be the ego showing up and wreaking havoc. Like we like, come on, let's it's got to be the behavior that kind of leads to that.
0: Yeah, and so you said that really well and I just I want to make sure that we hit really clearly that what I think is very unhelpful about this perspective is to point out that they would go into these crime scenes and they would see what just the the sort of fallout of whatever had taken place. And that is not actually observing the behavior that caused that crime scene to look that way. And so they're talking about that as the behavior, but they're not actually observing behavior. They're observing what happened because of the behavior and then having to try and guess what that behavior is and then trying to guess who the person is who caused that behavior based on that. And that's two steps removed from any direct observation of a person doing this sort of thing. So... That's not to say that it's completely invalid just to make sure we're clear on our terms here that what we're really actually observing is not someone's behavior. We're just looking at the what's left behind at a crime scene and then trying to make inferences based on that. And I think we just need to be clear that what we're doing is making some leaps in logic. And I say we I'm talking about the human race because I'm not a criminal (laughs)
1: profiler. But yeah, it's just general forensic science is like that. I mean, like if you really get to it, like, you know, you're. Kind of working backwards. Like you see the end result of the behavior, you see what's left, and you have to work backwards to figure out what might actually happen. And you're never going to get a direct observation of that behavior that occurred. What's going to happen instead is you're going to get a pretty close approximation based on a lot of information that's kind of synthesized.
0: Right. Now, it was either McCrary or the author of the article that I was reading. I'm, I'm not sure which one it was, but whoever it was that I was reading pointed out that there were four stages along which a profile is constructed. First, you have the motivation then the features of the victim, third, the disposal of the body, and then last, any post-crime actions such as reactions to the media or if they contact the police, something where it's after the crime, but we do have some kind of behavior to observe and record.
1: And that in itself is a lot of information. Yeah, absolutely. And that's given that you have a crime scene where there's not a living victim. Now, in an instance that there is a living witness or or a surviving victim, the victim can also provide a lot of valuable information about the perpetrator. And that's actually a better situation to be in, given that that person can directly report behavior that they saw.
0: And there was a guy that I found, I think we could call him a researcher. His name is David Cantor. And he specifically is, I think, one of the sort of heroes of the story, because he's really been pushing for a system of profiling that is developed by collecting as much data as possible on past cases, and then using statistics to organize information such that real patterns are identified, rather than sort of just speculated upon or inferred. And so, We might have a hunch or a gut feeling about what's going on with these cases, and he's really arguing, people make mistakes. Let's really look at these numbers and find patterns. And as scientists... As practitioners, you and I know that whenever we're working with someone, we don't rely on what our intuitions are about how things are going. We have to look at data, and we take data constantly, and we don't make any guesses about what's happening or what could be happening or how things are going until we have data. It's just critically important.
1: Yeah. I mean, the goal of science is description, prediction, and control. Right. So that's the thing is like we're trying to describe this phenomenon and and create predictions based on this these data that we have. And that's and that's a lot of what's happening here. So. Right. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I like that framework. Yeah. So for instance, for a long time, it was believed that the type of violence committed during a rape was. A distinguishing feature of the criminal but Cantor and his colleagues applied statistics to the data and found that it was actually the nonviolent actions such as whether they stole from or apologized to the victim that most clearly distinguished the perpetrator so it was behavior that wasn't even the crime itself it was behavior that happened after the fact
0: exactly right and so that was a really good example of them finding something new about those cases That people had been relying on information that wasn't correct, that wasn't helpful, that wasn't making accurate predictions. So that was a a really cool example of that. Another really cool figure in this is Richard Coxus, a researcher out of Australia who cleverly pointed out that most investigators have been trying to develop the sort of idea of like, quote unquote, principles of profiling. And specifically so that they have developed some rules about how a specific crime component would be linked to a specific profile. And I'll give examples of that in just a moment. However, he argues instead that they should be focusing on how to construct a profile based on the information that is available or information that is missing. That is, having or missing certain pieces of evidence should guide how confident the investigator can be in their profile. So, for example... And I'm not pulling this from him directly, this is just what I derived from the examples that were given. Someone who positioned a body in a particular way might suggest that they have some kind of ritualistic habits, or at least that they have some kind of signature that they leave behind. But it really shouldn't be ruled out that there might actually be a specific pragmatic reason for positioning the body that way that might have nothing at all to do with ritual. Unless there is more information to support that hypothesis. So really he just talks about in this that it's important to identify the components of the profile, where they came from, and how you could say this might be part of the profile, but we need to treat this as low priority because we don't have enough actual evidence to back that up as being a critical feature. It just might be versus this is something we've seen a lot of patterns of. We have a lot of information about this. We can be very confident has to be a critical feature. And so almost being able to more clearly identify how to include and what to include in that profile based on how confident you are and whether or not it might end up eventually being a red herring because it's it's a distraction, it's not actually a relevant feature.
1: I think that lends itself to the discussion that more data is better. Like if we can gather more information, that's the best possible outcome that we can have in the event that some horrific crime occurs. Absolutely. Now, if there are multiple crimes, like, you know, they believe that the same person is responsible for those crimes or or something along those lines, then they can actually take a look at those commonalities in those crimes and actually get a better idea of potential patterns. It's much harder to do this kind of analysis on a single crime because it could be a one-off. It could be a, a very particular circumstance, but like when you can, you can start deriving patterns when you see multiple cases that are similar in nature.
0: Right. So let's actually go ahead and jump into how to construct a profile. Yeah. And it's nearly impossible to have a very straightforward checklist and to see like actual patterns here. But this is sort of generally how it works based on one website that I found. And this is an example of trying to have like one component linked to one piece of profile. So take it with a grain of salt, which is to say, be skeptical about how accurate these things really are. But this is generally how constructed a profile works. Do you want to take the first one?
1: Yeah. And I will say too, like, as you start going through this, you'll see some of it's kind of linked to what you would describe as like linear thought. Like it makes sense when you think about it. Right. So that's a lot of where this is going to come from. Yes. So like, for example, the first thing is if the crime was sexual, then look for someone with a history of sexual offenses. That from a common sense standpoint, makes perfect sense.
0: Fairly straightforward. Absolutely. Now, if there is some sort of evidence of planning or control, this is what I, was, I mentioned before that we would talk about what that means. Like, how do you know if something's organized? Well, examples include things like bringing tools or using specific tools. If they use restraints, because that means that they can control the situation, how they dispose of the body. This is assuming there is a body or not. All of this indicates some amount of planning and that indicates that this is organized as we talked about before. Okay, so those are the kind of things they look for is really evidence of planning. Now, if they do see something as being organized, then what the sort of stereotypical profile that has been constructed in the past, they tend to look for individuals who are in a relationship, who are somewhat well-educated, and who are employed are sort of the three things for setting up who this person might be. Again, taken with some skepticism.
1: I mean, like I said, these aren't huge leaps in logic. The issue is that you need the data to back it up. So the other side of that coin, you know, when we talk about unorganized, you've got sometimes where uh, crime scene specifically might be messy, chaotic, there might be unplanned attacks and the person may have also been less likely to have chosen a victim. Specifically, these would indicate what they described as disorganized perpetrators. And so they tend to look for people who might have mental illness, live alone or with a relative, are unemployed or work sometimes at menial jobs and have little education. So that's kind of the other stereotype that goes along with this. So if you're organized, you're educated. If you're disorganized, you're probably a little uneducated.
0: Right. And all of these are, again, just suppositions that are based on a small amount of information. I mean, some of it's maybe a little more legitimate than others. But another thing that they look for with respect to serial killers specifically is that most of them are in their 20s and 30s. So they're going to look for someone in that age group. Most of them are male and they also tend to kill people only of the race to which they belong. Huh? Just as speaking to what generally has been the case.
1: You can see like again like a lot of times what'll happen within these profiles is like there's kind of some with a little bit of information there's like a larger generalization. And so you still need more information to synthesize, right? So
0: Yes, very much so. So
1: as we go through another one is that most commit their crimes relatively close to where they live, which logistically makes sense. If I I don't want to have to travel too far to commit a crime and then fly back home, you know, that's kind of
0: Wild. If you did too, like it would put you in a very specific location where you had no other reason potentially to be. So it's sort of like if you're going out of your way to do this, and like whenever you're in a city other than the city you live in, there just happens to be a murder that has this very specific pattern, that would start to look very suspicious.
1: Yeah. So I mean, this isn't a guide to how to become a serial killer, just so everybody has that. Like. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. We're not (laughs) advocating that you do any of these things.
0: I'm just saying that like it makes sense that they would say they would look for people who are close to their own home because it actually maybe be more suspicious to travel around
1: yeah so sometimes they look for uh people with military background or for like organized serial killers like people who have a very specific training set or a skill set right so like especially for those people who have like you know that the patterns are clear they're prepared like you know maybe there's certain patterns within the crime scene that could relate to a particular type of training. Liam Neeson. Skills. <laughs>
0: so taken. When the crime is really over the top, they tend to look for someone who's close to the victim, such as a partner or relative or even friend potentially. And what I mean by over the top is like someone who is there just to like burglarize somebody and then someone happens to be home and they weren't expecting it. They might like try and subdue them by stabbing them or shooting them once. And over the top, is they, like, stabbed him, like, 37 times or emptied their gun twice. You know, (laughs) it's just super overkill. They tend to look for, if that was the case, then probably there was some kind of emotional reaction, and if there was an emotional reaction, then they probably knew the person, and so they'd look for someone who is close to them in some way.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where you'll hear a lot of, like, crimes of passion gets profiled that way. Yes. So non-serial offenders tend to steal things of value Where serial offenders tend to take things of emotional, but not monetary significance. So that makes sense. A non-serial offender might take something like they may rob somebody, like grab some money off of them, but like a serial offender may take like a, like a memento or like a trophy.
0: Right. Yes, exactly right.
1: Okay. So now there's this thing that
0: many people have likely heard called an M.O., And then that's actually contrasted here with the idea of a signature. And that's one of the, I got this from a source that I've linked in the show notes, but the MO, which stands of course for modus operandi, is the style in which the crime was committed. And so that includes essentially how it was done, what weapons were used, where or when, or to whom the crime was committed and things like that. So they're really just looking for the specific details that are necessary for the completion of whatever the crime is. And the MOs actually can and often do change and, if you have a serial offender, become increasingly sophisticated as the person gets more practice with committing their crimes. So the very specific style might help
1: you lead towards someone, but they also might change a little bit as the the person goes on. And so in contrast you have a signature and that's distinguished from an mo as something that never changes and has nothing to do with the act of the crime or getting away with it so this can include things like posing the body or leaving something behind the scene you know when you go into like the zodiac killer like one of the, his signatures was always writing a letter or like you know like kind of taunting the police that was a signature of their crime so when you talk about signatures they are something that just never changes in relation to that crime
0: the wet bandits from home alone <laughs>
1: <laughs> i believe you mean the sticky bandits
0: the sticky bandits yeah, that's fair. <laughs> they,
1: they, yeah they changed well that's they changed their signature yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> all right so the last
0: section here is just to talk about a little of the research and controversy around this so i actually want to start by saying when we started research for this The approach that we were taking was really to debunk it as a myth, as criminal profiling, because there was so, I knew going into this how much controversy there was. However, I feel like we were really pleased and lucky to find some amount of coherent research that has been brought to profiling. And there is, of course, plenty to be skeptical about. And we're going to talk about a lot of that now. But a lot of this is actually based on sound scientific approaches and this use of data. So there are these people that have been working since the 80s and 90s that really pushed for an agenda of using science and data to gather information and look for actual patterns that are not just based on speculation have been doing a really good job. And so this isn't just completely bunk. There's a lot of potential for good work to be done here that's less likely to lean on things like morality and bias and can actually turn to information that's credible, validated and verifiable. But let's go ahead and dive into some of these studies and whatnot.
1: Yeah. So you've got Cox's and colleagues in 2000, they published a study showing that police profilers and other experts were all about equally good at generating the correct profile, which is cool to see that it kind of generalizes across groups of people that do different like day to day tasks.
0: True. Part of the point of that was that the profilers weren't actually any better at this than just sort of the regular (laughs) law enforcement people were. Yeah.
1: So it kind of worked them out of a job. But psychologists specifically were statistically better than the experts. And so the psychics simply relied on stereotypes. So I guess the takeaway from this is that if you really want a good profile and you want to get accurate, check with a psychologist. Don't go to a psychic.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so essentially what they were sort of looking at is how well people were using these profiling techniques and they had those three groups that i didn't clearly delineate when i was writing this section here that there were the the sort of experts in profiling then they had the psychologists and they had the psychics and they basically gave them all the details of a closed case so it was all from a real case that had been closed and they had caught the person they were all confirmed on who it was but they wanted to see if they from the from the details of the case could construct a profile and the those Law enforcement people, the police, the profilers, and the other experts, they all generated about equally accurate uh, <laughs> content, but they weren't very accurate. The psychologists were a little better than them, and yeah. the psychics were just like, well, you know, whatever. It was just stereotypes, So, but kind of a funny example of that. Allison and colleagues published a 2001 review where what they did is they took 21 profiles and they compared those profiles to the actual cases where the evidence then was presented in the court cases and whatnot, and those those were also closed cases, and they found that 80% or more of the claims that were made were unsubstantiated. That is to say that there were profiles constructed based on absolutely nothing or there was no justifiable reason to have included those claims in the profile. And then 30% of them were straight up falsifiable, which is to say they had contradictory evidence. Oh. Yeah. They further demonstrated that given two profiles, one accurate and one completely fabricated, but both based on a real case. So they basically had a group that received, I think they had several groups, but groups that received the accurate profile and the details of the case, and groups that received the completely fabricated profile and details of the case, and asked them to rate how accurate they thought that profile was, and both groups, or all the groups, essentially rated them as being equally accurate. Ooh! And then finally, they described that 72% of statements given as part of a profile were simply repeating details of the offense and the M.O. of the perpetrator, which is to say that people would just say they tend to do X and the X that they said was something that they had just done in the last crime scene. So it's sort of Captain Hindsight style
1: crime <laughs> descriptions. Also, we're superhero. <laughs> yes. Captain Hindsight. Like that—that that is not a useful superpower at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. Also, we found a section of a book on criminal profiling that compared profiling to the Dunning Kruger effect with the cognitive errors being made by the profilers.
0: And that's to say that sort of the less experience they had, the more confidence
1: they had in their experience as being good profilers. <laughs> that's so. That's fun. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> You know, at the end of the day, others have pointed out that police often rely extensively on data that come from biased sources and tend to select criminals based on classism and racism. And there is plenty of data on that. And like I said, that's not something we want to really dig into right now. But we can kind of say that, you know, without a doubt, there are a lot of studies and there's a lot of research on this idea of classism, but, you know, based on socioeconomic status, based on racism and all the stuff that that becomes a problem when it comes to profiling without data.
0: Yeah. And I think that's actually a great time to segue then to essentially what our major take-homes are here. And the first of those, for me at least, is that there is this movement in profiling to use good statistics and data based on those evidence to actually identify real patterns where they exist and to then say, when we see these things showing up, let's look at the data that we have and see where we see it matches and overlap with that information. And that's going to be things where it's going to change over time as more and more data come in, as people change, as culture changes and details of things change. But that also means that those are going to get more sophisticated as long as there are line on data and actual information then they'll be able to say this is most likely what's going on and here's our degree of confidence as opposed to well this person clearly is a satanist because they did this to a kid maybe I don't
1: literally know. all you do is look at the west memphis 3 case example like Yes. Three kids who were identified as like Satanists that were in town that were like troubled youth got profiled and they got put away for decades for a crime they didn't commit. Yeah. Based on nothing. Based on nothing. Based on a faulty profile. Based on prejudices and biases. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's, you know, my biggest take home, too, is like I'm really glad to see that there are systems in place and that there are processes by which data is used to make those decisions. I think that's important when we start talking about this. And I think that gives the idea of profiling some merit in a system that allows for data to be used. And the problem is that a lot of the systems that are in place or the people that are attempting to profile are profiling based on some kind of based on their own learning histories and based on their own biases and stuff, but based on a system that doesn't allow them to access data to make those educated decisions. And so that's where that Dunning-Kruger effect comes in where it's like, oh, they can profile, they can do it just as good as anybody else. But it's like, okay, you can do it just as good as this profiler, but nobody's good at it (laughs) without data, you know? Yeah. And so I think
0: an, another point to make here is you see this on shows and I thought about bringing them in, but there's that, I think it's criminal minds, maybe behavior analysis unit. Uh-huh. I don't know. There's so many crime shows. I honestly don't know which one it belongs to, but I've seen some of these episodes and how they talk about their and how they go about constructing their profiling. And that is absolutely not what profiling really looks like. And this is not, th- that's not an example of using good data or using data at all to construct these profiles. So. You know, you maybe came into this hoping that we would have something like this. We're going to teach you how to start go out and sleuthing and solving crimes, and that would all be really fun and really (laughs) cool. But unfortunately, every crime is going to be a little bit idiosyncratic, and you're just going to have to really look at the evidence and the details and look at data to make any kind of inferences and start ruling out people or including specific people as part of that. So there's not a one size fits all approach is, I guess, sort of my, my summary of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that's probably the best take home point that we can make here is like, it's worth having the data, but it's also important to have the critical skills on how to put together a profile so that you can look at those idiosyncratic variables related to that singular crime.
0: And try not to let your bias get in the way. Yep, exactly. <laughs> all right. You have anything else, Dr. Shane? Nope. That's it. Dr. Abraham, that's all I've got. Okay. All right, let's do some quick recommendations. Recommendations. I'm going to go first. We both have similar sort of ideas here for recommendations. <laughs> so, uh, a band that I really like is 4 Year Strong. F O U R Y E A R, the word strong. I'm not sure how to spell year, but it has multiple spellings. Anyway, four (laughs) years strong. And I've liked them for a long time. They are putting out a new album a couple of weeks out from the time of this recording. All By the time this comes out, the album will be out. And the album is called Brain Pain. And this is sort of rock, punk rock. There's a lot of melody to it, so there's some pop-ish elements in there. So at the time of this recording, only three of the songs are available for, the, for this album. And I just really, really like all three of them so much that I had to give it as a recommendation. So at least those three tracks are fantastic. <laughs> and hopefully the rest of the album is as good. But that's my recommendation is the album Brain Pain by the band Four Years Strong. Awesome. That band
1: rules. That band's so much fun. Yeah, they're fun. My recommendation is also a band. Uh, I've been digging them for a little bit. They're called Spanish Love Songs, which is really funny because when I first discovered them, I had a hard time finding them because anytime you would Google Spanish Love Songs, the band would not come up <laughs> that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense so so they have two full lengths uh, one is called schmaltz and the other one is called brave face everyone and brave face everyone is the newest one and I have been listening to it non-stop since it came out they are kind of like a rockier punk band definitely some pop sensibilities some some melody to it I'm sing about some really heavy themes like heroin addiction and having like really intense depression and mental health issues but they do it in a really tasteful way and do a really good job of storytelling in their lyrics. And so I think that is one of the reasons why I'm drawn to them. But I would go so far as to say, and I've made this comment on a different podcast too, is that Brave Face Everyone is probably my record of 2020. Wow. It's that good. The year is so, is so young. I know. And I, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that it's, it's, probably, it's probably the record of the year for me.
0: Alright, cool. Well, if you are a criminal profiler, or you've been profiled, or you're just an amateur sleuth, or even if you are anything at all, we're happy to hear from you. So please reach out to us on social media or email or any of those other platforms. You can find links for more information about all the sources that we used for this in the show notes of this episode. And if you have any other questions, comments, concerns, or would like to support us, you may contact us, can support us by leaving us a rating and review, join us on Patreon. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me, Shane. Anytime. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See
2: ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWDWDPodcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to WWDWDPodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why we do what we do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.